Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Yes Sir HR. My name is Mark and as usual I'm together with Yes, it's me Dennis in Jersey. Reasonably sunny at the moment. Yeah, so how was your break then? Uh, in case anyone who's wondering how come we didn't post an episode last week, well because we took a well-deserved break. Uh, and where did you go? Yeah, I was in uh, in the UK. Um and um, met up with my daughters and their partners, and uh, yeah, we that was really good, good fun. They're all very sporty, so um, a lot of games, including football, uh, all very competitive. Um, every single game, so great to see them. And um, I'll probably go back in a few weeks' time, so that's it. Okay, so uh, was it like some kind of celebration, or was it just a midterm break? Or well, funny enough, uh, as you know, um. It was my 70th birthday, but I don't do birthdays. But that's, and I said, look, no presents, no cars. I've never, I've never, and as a kid, we never had birthdays, couldn't afford that sort of thing. Yeah. And, um, and uh, it's kind of weird that when people have these big birthday celebrations, anyway, it's up to them. But they um, did a bit of a surprise and said, well, we won't do a birthday thing, but we'll all meet up together as a gathering, basically. So it was for everybody. Um, so that was that. Okay, okay. So, uh, that's that's good. So, uh, let's jump straight into today's uh, session. And uh, I just want to set the context before we begin the uh, discussion. And that is a, a colleague, so a shout out to uh, Sebeng from Singapore Polytechnic. Uh, in case he listens to this uh, pod, he was uh, sharing with me an interesting article. Uh, and I will post this article in the show notes so that people can uh, read it for themselves. But... Uh, I thought what was interesting was uh, this is a research article uh, that is made, of course, easy to read and understand is why students forget and what you can do about it. Uh, and this is why I decided that we needed to talk about this was because um, I had a misconception and I hope that you can clear this up for me. So the, the headline goes, our brains are wired to forget, but there are research-backed strategies that you can use to make our teaching stick. And I know that we talked a little bit about uh, working memory and long-term memory, but I'm going to focus on the line that says our brains are wired to forget. Uh, but I remember when we were talking about this, that actually the brain has an infinite capacity to remember. So is there some kind of paradox there? No, not really. Um, the infinite capacity is based on the, I think, 84... Um, billion neurons that we have and the fact that they can connect to other thousands of neurons in terms yep. of linkages that you can never really fill the brain up so the kind of notion that i used to have when i studied for exams that when i finished an exam if i could somehow extract that knowledge that i've done the exam in so that there was more space for new knowledge that was uh <laughs> kind of silly really in retrospect but at the time it made sense you kind of thought that because we can only process a limited amount at once i mean miller coined the the magic seven plus or minus two bits but more recent cognitive science as i think we mentioned is we only really can process two to four bits more or less well in one go so we have an illusion that the brain is not terribly good at memory in fact what's not good is the capacity of working memory to process it once it's in there uh, we can never fill the bucket up but you might then be saying well hold on if we can never fill the bucket up 
why is it that once it's in there, then uh, it, it sometimes yeah. gets lost? And yeah. it's a very simple fact, Mark. I mean, look, me and you, the fine athletes that we are for our age, um, are not as good as we were, um, you know, probably 20 years back. So, again, if you put information in your brain, even though it may be resilient for a number of years, if I said to you now, can you remember your first telephone number? Can you? My first telephone number? Yeah. Uh, you'll be surprised, but it's 4423683. Okay. What about the one after that? I cannot remember the one after that because oh, that well, one okay. was in the house that I lived for close to 15 years of my life. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so basically, the, we tend to forget things. Now, some, what, what will happen is, is that the, the linkages... Mm -hmm. Yeah, biologically between neural networks will be stronger or weaker dependent on how we use it. Now, you know, sometimes you're having a conversation and you say, who was the, the football player who played for West Ham in the 1960s? or Billy Bond. <laughs> yeah, and we're like, it's on the tip of your tongue. At that age, you know, there's some degree of wear. But if I said to you, you know, who's the manager, who was the famous manager in the last two decades for Man United, what would you say? The most famous manager in the last two decades. Yeah. For Sir Alex Ferguson. Yeah. Now, that's yeah. very much in your brain at the moment. Yeah. It's been well used. Um, if if you said to me, um, could I name all the managers of Tottenham um, for this century? I'd struggle. I think I could probably get about half of them. However, it's definitely um, Antonio Conte at the moment. So, that's very much a well-used neural network. So, essentially, um, information, some information um, that's perhaps... Yeah. If not used or not recollected remember the big point is every time you take information out your long-term memory system and put it in your conscious mind and say ah um i'll, I'll do it now uh, keith burtonshaw i thought was one of tottenham's best managers and um um, I remember that a little while back. Having now put it in my brain, that's fired the neural network that's still there and it'll go back and it'll keep it ticking over. So the point is that if you don't use it, you have a chance of losing it over time. But there are memory strategies and these are not these fluffy, yeah. get a power pack memory and pay 50 quid. and um, You can bypass working memory by doing that. I mean, that's not the case. There's only one way you can bypass working memory, and perhaps we'll come to that as we go through the issue. So quite simple. Look, if you don't use it, there is a chance of losing it. Just like the fitness, I can still go in the gym at 70 and probably lift, lift, lift more than most 18-year-olds. But I couldn't compete with a very fit 18-year-old. And that's right. because okay. I go to the gym three times a week. That's the only reason. Yeah. So I'm going, I'm going to, to build on what you just said. Uh, and we yeah. will get to the strategies. Uh, but uh, in the article, uh, they have quoted neurobiologist Blake Richards yeah. and Paul Franklin. And I thought what they said was actually quite interesting. I want to get your take on this. So according to Richards and Franklin, number one, the goal of memory is not just to store information accurately, okay, which is what I thought it was, mm -hmm. uh, but to also optimize decision making. So in chaotic, quickly changing environments like what we what we are operating in today, where everything is just like going at a billion miles per hour, uh, in this model of cognition, apparently forgetting is a evolutionary strategy, a purposeful process that runs in the background of memory 
evaluating and discarding information that doesn't promote the survival of the species. That's fascinating for me. What do you think about that one? Oh, yeah, well, that's well done. In fact, I wrote quite a bit about that in um, my recent book, um, if I can remember rightly. Um, <laughs> what we, no, I'm just joking. Right? Now, the point is very much this, that we used to think of long-term memory as a kind of big, inert non-active yep. dumping ground right we just put stuff in you know and you know if you put stuff in folders the, the folders don't change and if you put it in the folder and you you can find the folder and you know what's in it it, sh it should be there it doesn't change in some way what we've now learned is that working uh, sorry long-term memory is not a inert system it's not a big dumping ground it is dynamic and active in fact it's very very in fact, Kershaw, I think it was, referred to it as the central dominant cognitive structure. And it's what you've got in your long-term memory that's so powerful. And if you've got lots of good stuff in it and it's well um, kind of connected, um, what that basically means is that you're able to make massively quick decisions. And that's why when you watch the top tennis players, for example, they are they are picking up on small cues almost unconsciously. And that's why they can almost be moving just as the ball's it. So what it what your long-term memory does if you're an expert field, it gives for picking up and seeing things and responding to things quicker. So, you know, that's a mechanism. I mean, it's a survival mechanism. I mean, as we know, you know, the, the species that sees better, eats better. Uh, the species that has better knowledge of situations will perceive things and respond quicker. So to, to be able to see well and be able to make quick decisions is great. And that's the why expertise is, is so valued, because... It's what you've got in your long-term memory. Uh, great quote from um, Daniel Willingham is that memory is what's left after thinking. We used to, oh, there's some people who say, oh, memory's bad for you. Well, no, it isn't. You've got to memorise stuff, get it in your brain, get it organised in long-term memory, and that becomes a very dynamic um, active entity. Now, obviously, from an evolutionary point of view, the stuff that doesn't seem to have much use it will probably get cleaned out and that kind of makes sense doesn't it really yeah so uh just also what they said and then uh and then we can start looking at some of the strategies which i yeah. thought was quite interesting was uh so what they are saying is forgetting is not necessarily a failure of memory so i, I thought that was quite interesting uh, and no. what they said was rather it may represent an investment in more optimal mnemonic strategy did you get that? Sorry, I did. I, I heard you say optimal monomic strategy. What was a bit before that? Okay, so uh, I, I'm going to say, okay, so what they are saying is forgetting is not necessarily a failure of memory. Yeah, Rather, that. it may represent an investment in more optimal mnemonic strategy. Yeah, that's right. I mean, basically what, it, what, what it's sort of saying is it's a bit like clearing out your clothes cabinet. Uh, it's not a problem I have because um, I'm not... <laughs> buys a lot of clothes but there are people and uh, i'm married to one who seems to have a tremendous ability to uh, keep buying clothes that are uh, in a sense uh, a kind of more than filled up the cabinet sense uh, um 
Um, it, same kind of thing. Yeah, the it, the, the brain tries to. Uh, let's be honest about it. Um, the brain is not the. It's a very complex entity, but I would say it's it's highly great in terms of design. I mean, if if it was optimally well designed, that we process thousands of bits of information um, immediately um, without having to go through this kind of hard slog of um, rehearsal practice in working memory. Um, so that's my frame on that anyway. Right. So before we continue to the strategies, I just want to put it out there. Uh, Mr. Sale, if you are listening to this, I had nothing to do with uh, Dennis saying about clothes. Uh, please feel free to burn all these clothes. <laughs> okay, so I just wanted to put it out there. Okay, so uh, let's uh, jump straight to some of these uh, strategies. Uh, and uh, these, I would say, are relatively well-researched and evidence-based, which is what our podcast is about. Yeah. So um, let's, let's talk a little bit about these strategies. Uh, but more importantly, also how uh, I think teachers, lecturers, educators, uh, you know, instructors, how they can actually use it in the classroom. So the first one that uh, I think most of us are quite uh, clear about is peer-to-peer uh, -peer explanations. Uh, and the strategy really is when students explain what they've learned to peers, fading memories are reactivated, strengthened and consolidated. Uh, this strategy not only increases retention, but also encourages active learning. Now, that is what I need you to do is, how does that uh, fit into the idea of helping students remember better? Uh, and what can uh, teachers, yeah. lecturers do in the classroom? Yeah. Well, I mean, if you think about those two aspects, if students are talking to each other about a topic, yep. Yep. information out of their long-term memories, it's kind of activating prior learning, isn't it? So to do this collectively means that you've got a group of people, which one makes mm -hmm. it um, active. And secondly, that they can be cueing each other. So I could say to you, oh, uh, I remember in 1966, uh, this happened. Uh, can't remember who scored the first goal in the game. And you say, oh, yeah, it wasn't the English guy. And someone goes, yeah, it must have been the German. And collectively, you are pulling the the all the prior knowledge some of it may have been you know in a sense not so strong now so it's it's a great method for uh, checking what's in your long-term memory using the group right collectively synergistically to fill in any gaps and um because you're doing it in a social situation and we're social creatures um it's likely to be very effective so from a teacher's point of view get students to talk about the learning that they're doing, particularly um, if they're trying to solve new problems and deal with new information and make connections between that new information and their prior learning. It's, 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 it's a really good, effective technique. And encourage students to do that, not just in class, but if they're going to revise. I remember when I did revision for my PGCE um, with the football team at London University, we got together and we did an analysis of all the exam papers, all the questions. We worked out that there were certain definite areas. Pairs went away, researched it for a few days. We met up with we met up in the pub and where else? And um, over the course of several hours, we had a few beers and each person would 
present their notes, run off copies for everybody. We'd read through them. We would be asking each other questions. It was a good fun day. And we went away with, I think, better organised long-term memories in the areas that the typical questions come about. Right. As well. So, obviously, we wouldn't process all of it, but everybody had a set. So, very good learning strategy. Right. Okay. Uh, so how I would do it is probably, uh, you know, we uh, we have this little thing called checkouts. Um, I would probably do it at the end of the class, uh, and to get each another to share one, you know, uh, either a concept that they have learned to explain it, uh, and possibly to link it to something that they are familiar with, so that it helps to um not only activate prior knowledge but also provide linkages so that they remember better. Uh, would that be a fair uh, strategy to to use to talk about peer-to-peer explanations? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. If you've got people thinking about what they need to know yep. and check they've either got it in their long-term memories or to be able to connect it to somebody else who's got it, whether yep. you're in some online tool, and that's why these online kind of assessment tools uh, particularly when they're used collaboratively, are, are really good. It doesn't change the effectiveness of the brain, but what it does is optimizes the opportunities of people to be a bit more motivated and to um, to learn more effectively in terms of um, a very useful source, which is other people studying the same thing. Right. Okay. So we'll move on to the second one, which is interesting for me, uh, and I'll explain why, but let me just read it first. So the second one, our strategy, is the spacing effect. So uh, instead of covering a topic and then moving on, revisit key ideas throughout the school year. Research shows that students perform better academically when given multiple opportunities to review learned material. For example, teachers can quickly incorporate a brief review of what was covered several weeks earlier into ongoing lessons or use homework to re-expose students to previous concepts. Now, I want to go one step further, and this really goes back to one of our core principles that we talked about. I can't remember what episode because we are already almost into our 50th episode. Um, is really about uh, teachers, uh, educators, instructors needing to know the key concepts of the area that they are experts in because I personally think we shouldn't just be talking about covering a topic and then moving on. It's about revisiting key concepts so that people understand what is the essence of that subject and then they can bring it in and apply it in different contexts. So to me, that is how we should be doing the spacing effect. Your thoughts then? Yeah, absolutely. Because once you understand the key concept, that will typically activate the brain naturally in the yep. Types of neurotransmitters involved, we won't bore readers with their names. But what it basically does, if that key concept is well reinforced and they uh, people actually understand it, as soon as you activate that key concept further down the line in, in spaced practice, and we know that spaced practice works, um, then that will typically pull in the other bits of knowledge, factual knowledge that connects around even linkages to other key concepts. So it's such a great thing. That's why teaching key concepts is second core principle. And um, working with the, the way memory works is another core principle. And that is 
activate prior knowledge. It's key concept. And it's also providing the retrieval pressure. And the idea in that going throughout the year means there's no chance of stuff being forgotten and naturally eroded. Because every time you do that, it reinforces so it helps to keep making connections across concepts and principles in the topic. So it's it's such a a useful thing to do. And um, often teachers don't do it. They'll teach for 10 weeks and they'll do assessments maybe at the end of a session. But the bottom line is that if they just do one bit of retrieval practice within a week, 80% lost. So it's very inefficient. Yes, do some retrieval practice at the end of a session, maybe at the beginning of the next session. Then don't leave eight weeks. Maybe every couple of weeks is to do that kind of spacing retrieval practice of prior key concepts. So students can then be evaluating themselves. And if they find that they're learning better, that enhances motivation, it enhances self-efficacy. It's just a it's just a great learning strategy again. Right. Okay. So um, if you are an educator looking at this, if you only remember one thing from today's podcast, uh, I would personally urge you to look at your uh, topic areas that you are covering for the module or semester and figure out what are the three or four key concepts that students must absolutely know. Um, I think many uh, young or inexperienced educators, uh, teachers come in and they want to teach every topic uh, while I do not disagree with that uh, methodology. I would think that as you become a bit more experienced, you would realize that your whole topic area can actually be contained with three to four concept areas. And I think it's a good test for yourself uh, to really be able to identify these three to four concepts. So yeah, if you want to do one thing this week as a challenge, then please do that. So moving on to number three, uh, frequent practice test. This is, of course, another core principle, which is deliberate practice. Uh, and over to you then, what exactly is deliberate practice and how do we do that or introduce that in the classroom? Yeah, um, it's like people say, um, uh, if you practice long enough, you get much better at it. Practice makes perfection. Well, it can, but it may not. If you're not using the right techniques and you're not developing the right skills, all that happens is you get very, very good at doing something badly. Now, the secret with deliberate practice is that it's a total approach to learning something. In other words, be very clear about what knowledge and skills and perhaps attitudes that you need to have. But then say, well, OK, well, and this is where the role of the tutor, the expert tutor, the teacher is so important because you want individual students to be able to identify and to be clear about what they can do and what they need to do to improve, but not to make it necessarily a massive improvement, but to look at someone. I mean, if we use our favourite football subject and the English ladies um, won the Euros. Yep. And that's going to be a big boost for ladies football. And um, I'm really pleased about that, given that my daughter did actually play in the Prem for a while. And um, she was maybe 15 years too early. Otherwise, now she could be my pension plan. <laughs> but you're being serious now that when you look at a footballing skill, you, we know, I mean, we've played a lot of football, that you've got to be able to pass the ball comfortably. You've got to be able to control the ball um, comfortably. So if I'm working with someone, I would look at, right, let's look at the skill areas and say, right, this person can pass the ball over 10 yards, but 
two times out of 10, it's not accurate. So you might say, right, well, let's reduce that. So you look at their technique and maybe they're moving their foot slightly when they strike the ball where they shouldn't. So the idea is to keep building up achievable and some challenging goals with ongoing feedback. So there's the practice, there's the feedback, and hopefully there is improvement. Don't try to make massive gains because very often people will fail, maybe injure themselves, and that is not good for learning. So deliberate practice is so good because it builds the skills. And obviously what happens as you build skills, those skills become neurologically wired. And that's a real interesting thing about deliberate practice that people that are so good, say Novak Djokovic and Nadal, top golfers, it doesn't really matter. Because they've done so much deliberate practice, the brain almost um, becomes automatic in situations. It's called automaticity. And what that basically means is they will process um, an event much more uh, quickly and more accurately than someone who's not an expert in that field. So it becomes a neurological thing as well as a mental thing. At that you... point in time, that person is an X-man or X-woman. They are neurologically wired as well as um, able to do that thing better. So um, that's why you can't fully imitate it because it's got to be built into your body. I can watch Reg Roger Federer all day and I can see what he's doing but I can't, okay, and I can learn from watching him, but without the deliberate practice and without that kind of neural wiring in my um, um, brain, I'm never going to get there. Are you referring to muscle memory to, uh, yeah, in some way? You, yeah, I mean, that's the kind of popular term for it. Yeah, it's, it's neurological. You know, there's a neurological base to skill acquisition just as there is to knowledge acquisition so to be good at a, a skill you've got to develop the kinesthetic aspect but that that has its own kind of linkage neurologically as well so it's right. uh, the brain you know it's a brain memory basing and that's why this is one um, important point that the our memory system is a little bit like having the maserati car Maserati will do about 180, um, I think, miles an hour in top gear. But our memory, our working memory, is like having it in first gear at best, and not even as good as first gear. But once we've got a highly specialised area, so we are expert in the field, when we're working in that field, it's like that working memory, when we, when we uh, are solving a problem, it goes straight into working memory. So suddenly your working memory is your long-term memory in that field. That's why if you ask me about authors, I can keep quoting them, having written three books, read hundreds and hundreds of books and thousands of research papers and written it and edited it and read, read it through so many times. Most of it's in my head. So all of a sudden, I have this great expertise in quoting kind of cognitive scientists and educationalists. But you ask me about um, DIY in the house and... Um, I can probably name about five tools of which most of them I wouldn't know how to use without serious risk of injury. <laughs> okay. So, I've never used an electric drill. I, I, if you said to put, put some shells up on the wall, wouldn't know how to do it. I know there's a drill, there's a drill bit, and there's something called a raw plug, and there's a screw, but I, I wouldn't know how to uh, 
go and buy them, I'd have to, you know, I'd have to research it. I'd have to ask people. Obviously, once I've learned to do it, providing I have the motivation and I do a bit of deliberate practice, um, I'll probably be able to do it. But I have no interest in doing that. So um, I am totally um, uh, incompetent in, in most matters to do with um, assembling or repairing physical objects. I mean, I've never used a washing machine. I don't think I've ever used an Uber in 40 years. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. I can't work the oven. You know, even in Singapore, I couldn't work the oven. Um, I never actually used it. I mean, but, and that isn't because, you know, I'm some male chauvinist or whatever. I just never had to use uh, an oven because we, we, you know, I mean, very privileged living in Singapore to have, you know, domestic helpers. And sometimes in my domestic helper, I would kind of, I kind of adopted as my daughter, you know, on her days off and whatever, um, I'd sometimes try to use the oven and I'd have to ring her up and say, well, there's four dials on the oven, there's four kind of icons, which one's a grill, you know, kind of thing. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. so going going against, uh, I think this particular strategy is particularly useful to address the Ebbinghaus forgetting curve. So maybe as a quick uh, sum up then, what is the Ebbinghaus forgetting curve? Oh, I've forgotten to be frank with you. I was very <laughs> that it's kind of, as far as I'm concerned, kind of drifted off the radar. Now, what we do now yep. is that um, if you don't use um, something, I mean, I think I'm probably in the essence of it here. Yep. Within a day, you forget a certain amount, and fifty percent apparently. Days, yeah, it, you know, it, it can drop to eighty percent. I think that's the Epinau's original yep. concept that over without the re, without recall, there is a that it quickly falls away, and that's because it's not sufficiently neurologically wired in long term memory, which is why we do the repeated practice. Because every time we do that, we pull that neural network. That neural network fires. Uh, it comes from long-term memory into working memory. We are then conscious of it. Oh, yeah. Tottenham won the World Cup in 1966. The first goal was scored by German Elmer Aller in the 12th minute. Jeff Ayer scored a hat-trick. And uh, it's famous for the goal that did it cross the line or did not cross the line. And that Germany equalised in 90 minutes. Uh, no, 89 minutes. The, the, the scorer for Germany was Karl Einschnellinger. Now, how about that? Now... That's right out of my long-term memory. But I was there, and it was emotional, and I've talked about it many times, and I could pull it out very, very quickly. So that's why I can remember it. Right. But ask me to um, remember, if you said to me, what colour wallpaper have I got in the house? I have to kind of look around. I just don't really relate. I don't take no interest in those things. Yeah, and so... so yeah, so it goes back to what I said earlier. Apparently, it's not a it's not a problem about forgetting. It's about survival because your brain just chooses what's important, uh, and what's interesting for you to be kept, and what's not interesting, which is wallpaper, gets thrown out. So yeah, yeah. So so I think one of the things that uh that uh, and I would really encourage you to read the article. But one of the things that educators or teachers can do, um, is to and this is quite interesting for me because I never thought about it in this way is to break down one large high-stakes test into smaller tests over several months, which is apparently a very effective approach to get people to remember and do better on tests. So I think that's, that's something for us to think about, don't you think? Rather than one oh, yeah. large high-stakes into smaller tests? It, it makes perfect sense. I mean, uh, to me, I think there's... In, if we talk about, We've talked about assessment, haven't we, previously? Yeah. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm actually... Uh, 
actually quite a strong advocate of the high stakes pressurized exam because to me <laughs> living in the world is high stakes pressurized it's a, you know it's a, you know, a very volatile you know wild world as cat stevens or um forget like his name yusef whatever um um saying it's a wild world and i think you know students have got to learn to be more resilient and have grit and to say look i'm going in an exam room and what i do today really counts and i've got to put a good shift in preparation and be mentally prepared to go in so i've no objective uh, sorry objection to high stakes exam but i do think from a, a deep learning perspective we should be testing not obsessively the problem is if if, if you have too much like feedback it's good but i get sick now I'm sick of the fact that every time i have a telephone conversation i use the toilet i'm expected to give feedback it, it's you know it kind of it's an habituation so we should have regular um, use interleaving, um, which is something that we may we may go into. But the notion is that you just be one area totally. Uh, it's often better to build all areas up slowly, progressively with space practice. Um, so yeah, I mean, both the summative exam that could be looking at all the key concepts and having ongoing assessment that is doing um, doing them individually and mixing and matching is, is, is again, a good strategy because it reduces habituation, but it still maintains retrieval practice and motivation. Right. Okay. So um, you, you are spot on because uh, we are looking at number four, which is interleaving. Uh, and uh, I'm going to read this again. Uh, instead of grouping similar problems together, mix them up. And this is counterintuitive, I would say, to some mm. of the things that teachers will actually do in the classroom. So what we like to do is group similar things together because in the hope or in the, uh, I wouldn't use the word mistaken assumption, I would just say maybe in the assumption that actually it helps people learn better. Now, what the research shows is um, when you mix it up and when solving problems involves identifying the correct strategy to use and then executing the strategy, when similar problems are grouped together, students don't have to think about what strategies to use. They automatically apply the same solution over and over. Now, what interleaving does, it, it forces students to think on their feet and encodes learning more deeply. So can you, number one, clear this up for us? Uh, why should we not do this because it's counterintuitive. Um, and while this really, I think, uh, talks about mathematics as a concept, so I can understand, let's not group similar problems together. How can someone else who's not teaching mathematics apply interleaving? Okay, I'm going to use an analogy here, Mark. Yeah. Um, I've been kind of fortunate living in Asia in many respects. And one of the things is when I've written books, I've often kind of had a month where I say, right, I'm going to try to do, uh, move the book along, right? And books are made up of numbers of chapters, right? Yep. Now, it might seem logical to do it one chapter at a time. In other words, let's finish that first chapter perfectly. But what I found is that once I, and sometimes I invent the chapter as I go along, but I think, well, I've got to have a chapter on, say, intrinsic motivation. I've got to have a chapter on this. I've got to have a chapter on the frame in the curriculum. I've got to have a chapter on um, um, cognitive science learning principles, right? So what I would do, what I would do is 
Um, often go to places like the Philippines or Indonesia because it's nice and relaxed, and I can go in a coffee shop with my laptop and sit there, and and uh, I might sit there for two or three hours, and I'll start writing something in one of the chapters. And then I will stay with that for a while, and I might even stay with it for a day or two, but then I get to a stage where I start feeling a bit stale. And um, But because I've been getting that information and it's firing around in my, long, in my memory system, what's really good is that your long-term memory unconsciously is still working in that area. But consciously, I then go to another chapter and say, okay, well, let's kick in with this and let's get some stuff down. And I might be not getting anywhere for an hour or two and then I'll get a little bit. And I'll stay with that again until I feel I'm moving it forward a bit. And then I think, oh, I've had enough of that now. Now, my long-term memory, because it's got infinite capability, is still looking at those two previous chapters. And what often happens is I could be working on the third chapter and suddenly it just pops up. It's almost like your long-term memory is, in fact, it's more creative. In fact, creativity typically occurs in long-term memory because the, the neurons are more fluid and flexible and they can flirt with each other, whereas in conscious level, they're usually kind of in one parallel system. Now, what, what often happens is, working on chapter three and suddenly I think ah it just pops in my head there's a great bit of research where it is an idea a positive idea that can add value to the chapter and then I immediately write it down make some notes and then the following day or later on in that day I'll go to chapter three and do a couple of pages of that so can you see how this is working and that's what we want with students is that we want to be moving them along in the different topics in different subjects recognizing that if we can keep moving them along by uh, doing a little bit somewhere else, the interleaving thing, they're still working on the one and say to them, if you get some ideas, I'll get some questions. So this is why metacognition, I'm getting quite excited now, Mark. I love these topics. <laughs> yeah. If we're developing students to be metacognitive and they're aware of how their minds work, they will not see this as something strange, but to say, right, I'm working, I've got to do well in the maths, I've got to do well in the history, and I've got to do well in the, in the, in the biology. But not just simply to saturate themselves in one area, but recognise that over time, well, let's get stuck in, let's see if I can crack this factorization. Okay, I'm moving somewhere with it. Now, let's have a look at the biology and learn a bit about the liver, because I need to know how the liver works. And then, oh, I've got to do something on region, on you know, the Industrial Revolution or something. So what you're actually doing is, as you're doing this, you're building all of them up, and it's building a kind of um, an overview of looking at all of these things together and firing up new things and maybe seeing connections between them. And that, that's just that's just the way the brain works. And let's utilise that. Let's use our metacognition to know that this can happen. And then let's just recognise that you don't necessarily... Look, the only time you'd have to finish a task if the task has to be finished. In other words, if I'm... If I'm doing, if I'm cleaning the house, well, maybe that's not a good analogy. I could just clean one room and leave it. But, but the, 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 if I'm doing a fire drill and I've got to do seven stages of that fire drill almost immediately, I can't say, oh, after stage six, oh, well, I'll, I'll stop the last one. You know, that if something has to be done as a definite entity, it does. But learning a subject over time is an ongoing process. Does that make sense? Yeah, so uh, how I have interpreted that would be is, uh, uh, and I'll use myself as an example. So let's say if I was studying a new topic, 
Uh, and you tell me whether this makes sense. Uh, I'm uh, going to study a topic. What I'll do is I will do it for, for maybe half an hour, stop, and then change subject. Uh, read something else and then come back to the previous topic, do a bit of a review before going on to the next chapter and then switching back and forth. Does that count as interleaving? Yeah, that's interleaving, isn't it? And it really is. Um, it's a bit like kind of the, and what the problem, I mean, if we take something called continuous practice, you know, like would you want to practice continually? We know that what happens if you do continual practice for a little while, you get some improvement and then often it plateaus off and then you get get a bit bored. So it's actually better to leave it and then go back. Um, we know that base practice is with the other types of memory and deliberate practice techniques is better but you can do a fair bit of continuous practice but as soon as it starts to become tedious and you're getting annoyed and you're winding yourself up because you don't feel you're making the progress is stop even if you go and have a cup of coffee or watch the tv it's probably better than to keep flogging yourself but okay. you've got to put good practicing over time it's not oh i did 24 hours today and i'm killing myself and then i'm not doing anymore you're better off doing it in in manageable chunks but it's got to be continuous over time but not continuous as one batch right okay got it so uh for uh i think educators who are listening to this uh, you might want to look at uh, how you can do interleaving. Again, I, I'm still trying to wrap my head around this because it seems very counterintuitive for me. Although I must say and must confess when I'm doing uh, like proposals at work, I will do half of it and then I'll switch tasks. Uh, not because I want to remember it, but because I think you know it just gives me a different uh, thinking and perspective because I switch gears a little bit and I find that maybe that's when the quality becomes a little bit better. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. I I wouldn't say that that is uh, uh that that's my own version of how I'm looking at it. So that's interleaving for you. Um, we might want to uh, I, I don't know, maybe uh, get someone who's who is a avid practitioner of interleaving to share a little bit more what he or she does. Yeah. Well, the basic point is that when you've done one task, Mark, yeah. uh, really, you know, you you're actually putting stuff into your, your, your brain, your long-term memory system. Once it's there, that long-term memory system is still working on it. So that's right. And and it's working on it in a more relaxed, fluent way. And that's why it's likely to come up with something that's useful, that's more creative, that solves the problem. I, I often wake up during the night and I have a great idea. For example, I write regularly for the paper in Jersey. And, uh, I, you know, like, like you, I try to come up with a new interesting topic every two or three weeks. And often I'm lying in bed and it will just come to me. It's because my long-term memory now has done, I think, about, uh, 16, 17 articles. It's like us with the podcast. I get ideas for the podcast when I'm not thinking about the podcast because I, you know, not right. the, I've got no memory and gear to come up with things that uh, are relevant to you know evidence-based creative teaching and the idea of can we help teachers to become better and um, because it's uh, you know it's a central passion for us, we are trapped with a long-term memory system that may forget to get the chicken out the freezer um, for tonight's dinner, but we'll we'll come up with some idea of like you know it, it just comes to me. Well, let's look at this last last week's podcast, Jordan Peterson's Rules of Life. It just it's just because I, I saw one of his videos a couple. 
weeks ago just by chance and I forgot about it. Suddenly I'm thinking about um, podcasts or so, ah, maybe because your long-term memory is constantly sourcing for stuff in those areas. So more we, more we get in our long-term memory system in different areas. And that's why polymaths like Da Vinci were so clever because they knew so much about so many different things. They were able to have all those systems, all that knowledge firing around and connecting with each other. And that's what makes them so, so creative and, you know, appear to be so intelligent. Right. Okay. So, uh, yeah, I'm going to, we are going to the last one, which is, uh, I think this is something which is, uh, I think, quite familiar with everyone. But uh, there's a cautionary tale to this. Uh, and that is combined text with images. I think it's quite clear why we do that, because visual aids help to organize information. Uh, so that's why I think, uh, why I say it's a cautionary tale is because I want to maybe uh, urge uh, teachers who use a lot of PowerPoint in their teaching and learning, uh, who choose uh, images that please choose them with care because they can actually help with uh, memory retention and help uh, your students organize information. So it's not just a cursory or, you know, uh, uh, perfunctionary uh, pasting of any kind of picture. It's really about looking at the concepts and then pasting the appropriate picture. What do you think about that one, Dave? Yeah, well, there's an old saying that um, more is not better, better is better. So yeah. what it basically means, if, you, if you're trying to get across a visual image um, with some text, is to have a good image that really, you know, uh, is an analogy or a good representation. It can be either, um, sometimes both, of what you want to have. And have key text appropriately positioned um, around the image. So the idea is not to have a, a lot of clutter. Don't try to put more in key terms with the right image and the text appropriately around the image. Yeah, as a skill in doing that. Um, but if you can, yeah, it reduces, uh, it reduces um, cognitive strain on the memory system as well. Right. Okay. Fantastic. So that really... Uh, part A of our discussion, as always. So, uh, and I'm going to, I think it would be good if I just read this last uh, comment because uh, I actually thought this was quite good. Um, and, uh, you know, as a quick uh, sum up, and, and it goes like this. Uh, so, even though forgetting starts as soon as learning happens, as Ebbinghaus's experiments demonstrate, uh, looking at these five simple and effective strategies can actually help make learning stick and can help learning go a long way. So what I would like to do is really encourage everyone to uh, try this out and see uh, if it does help you. Uh, I mean, the research is pretty clear. It does show that it works. So try it out. Uh, and uh, maybe, you know, like me, try and fight the counterintuitive uh, idea of interleaving. Uh, I promise I will try and do that with my own classes and we'll see how that goes. It's perfectly logical when you understand <laughs> how the brain works. Sure. Okay, so maybe we might want to do an episode on how the brain works. Uh, okay, so moving on to part two, which is where we share something interesting that we may have read, something that we may have watched in terms of either a YouTube video or a movie, or something that may have just inspired us, or maybe even a quote. So you want to go first then? Well, funny enough, Mark, the, uh, the one thing that I did do was to uh, write an article on how memory works and um, why it does not. So it's kind of ironic that um, yep. and that we're actually doing the podcast on that. And um, I'm now, um, last few days, I've been kind of, the, 
what do you think of memory it begins with them what what i've just written i haven't published it yet it's just an article on four more m's and that is motivation yep. mindset uh march and metacognition as four real anchor points that help us to learn and um are also relevant to well-being and I'm just now thinking, right, and this is how the brain works, that could be a podcast in the future because those four things, with memory, which is another M, there's five M's that are really big anchor points. And what I would say finally is I'm thinking here is this podcast, um, will people who listen to this podcast remember the main um, principles that we've looked at today and um, from an evidence-based point of view. And unless they replay the podcast or pick out those five and do repeated practice and see how it connects with what's in their long-term memory, they'll probably forget. We won't forget because we've done so much kind of application of this stuff and we read this stuff and that's why we can have this conversation straight off the bat, so to speak. And so... That's the thing I could say now. Okay. So for me, uh, I have uh, a tool that I would like to share. Uh, and it's called Class Point. I don't believe I've shared this before. Uh, but uh, the reason why I'm sharing this is because I was doing a classroom observation and I saw a lecturer use it. And I thought it's quite actually useful. So uh, what is Class Point? Now, what exactly it is, it is plugged into Microsoft PowerPoint. So it is actually an application that you plug directly into Microsoft PowerPoint. Who isn't familiar with Microsoft PowerPoint, right? So yeah. ClassPoint is a powerful interactive classroom quiz tool that allows you to build strong life engagement with students uh, and to help them remember some of the more important concepts. So this is actually integrated within PowerPoint. You don't need to go to a separate uh, application. Students don't need to download anything. Uh, and you can create questions, quiz questions, you know, uh, you know, uh, or even important information, and then you want to post a quiz or poll immediately, you can allow them to, you can allow your students to do that immediately by just looking at the PowerPoint that you are displaying. Uh, so your existing slides can be turned into an interactive classroom quiz with just a click of a button. Uh, and I've seen it happen. Uh, it's actually quite useful. Uh, so while it's free up to a certain point, so I'm just looking at this. Uh, if you just sign up for a basic account, uh, you can actually, in your PowerPoint, you can create five questions. So uh, we talked about review, we talked about frequent review. You might want to download this and then you can use that five questions for free. Uh, and you can use any question type ranging from polls all the way to uh, multiple choice, all the way to short answers. And there's also even a leaderboard. And honestly, looking at it uh, as free and when they offer five questions about PowerPoint, I think it's definitely worth it. Uh, of course, if you want to go for pro and you want to, uh, then you have to pay about $10 Singapore dollars a month or it's about US $8.90. I would suggest that you try out the free account first, see how it works for you. Uh, and then you might want to discuss this and get a group of teachers together and then talk to your administration to actually buy the license. It's not that expensive uh, and, it can, and it's almost seamless. You don't even need to spend a lot of time uh, in professional development courses trying to figure out how it works. Is that intuitive? So what I'll do is I'll post the link uh, to ClassPoint so that you can go and check it out and try it out in your own classrooms. So that's something that you might want to use then in your next, uh, you know, when you as a as, as a supply teacher, uh, you might want to try this out uh, in the classroom and see whether it actually helps with students retaining uh, information.
Yeah, I mean, the, the thing is, it's been kind of interesting to actually, while I've been here, apart from doing kind of other work, to actually go in and do some teaching. And like people said, well, why do you want to go in at your age and do teaching? And my answer is, well, if I've written books on creative teaching and evidence-based teaching and I've trained yep. thousands of teaching, but I should be able to go into the classroom and still be able to teach, shouldn't I, really? Um, and um, that that's the real interesting thing. So I will do that, Mark. One question I have on that tool is... Yep. I, Yahoo and um, Socrative and um, yeah. th those sort of tools. How different is that stay from what it do and ease of use? It is definitely as easy to use as Kahoot. It's definitely as easy to use as Socrative. I think the biggest draw is you don't actually need to open up a new application. It is integrated within your PowerPoint. So as oh, you are right. developing your questions, yeah. as you are developing your material, teaching and learning material, oh, I think a quiz would be perfect here. You don't have to spend another 10 minutes fiddling and trying to log into an account into Kahoot or Socrative. You can just do that into your PowerPoint and it's done. But when you do the quiz, the students won't be able to use their own phones. To no, they will use their own phones because when you display the question in uh, when you display the questions on your PowerPoint and then it's projected onto the screen, a QR code or a link is available for students to scan and then they use their device to answer the question. Oh, I see. So it's still as easy to use of from course. the yeah. participant's point of view. Right. Yep. Got yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay, yeah. So yeah. that's yeah. So that's the end of uh the comeback episode after a break. Uh I enjoyed today's episode. I hope you did too then. Uh yeah, and so if you want to get in touch with us, you can do so by writing to us at evidence based creative teaching at gmail.com once again it is evidence-based creative teaching at gmail.com and if you have enjoyed today's episode and if you are looking back at past episodes uh, please do like and uh, share these uh, episodes with someone whom you think may actually uh, benefit from this so uh yeah it's uh, another episode done and dusted uh yeah so what's the plan for the week then uh, let me just think, um, what am I doing next? When I finish this here, um, I, I've i got a bit of painting to do on the garden wall. I really don't like that stuff, um, but it has to be done. And um, I suppose um, while I'm doing it, um, it slows my brain down. It's There's something therapeutic about painting. And my, my technical skills at painting are only good enough to paint a wall in one colour, not to actually do any kind of painting and stuff. So I'm going to do that. Then I'll probably do a little bit more work on um, um, something, a project that I'm involved in, um, which is an ongoing project, as you know, is something we're doing collaboratively is to build a, an online learning system in core evidence-based learning strategies so um, still keeping very active the fishing has not been good um hopefully it'll pick up in the next couple of weeks so over the next week i expect to do a fair bit of fishing and then um may go to england and i'm thinking of doing a trip to Romania and bulgaria go somewhere i've never been in the world so yeah i'm keeping active and busy and it's nice to uh, have warmer temperatures though people here keep talking about humidity I've, I've never experienced humidity in england i didn't think it existed i mean in singapore you used to go on about how humid singapore was and i could feel it a bit but it wasn't i never really it never really bothered me Perhaps okay right yeah 
well things exciting for you to look forward to yeah. uh we'll just uh okay so we'll just stop here for the day thank you everyone and uh, take care and we'll talk to you soon so goodbye and goodbye from me <laughs>